Good morning. Go ahead and find your seats. We do greet time better than any other church in America, I feel like. <laughs> All right. So we are in the middle of our series through 2 Corinthians now. And today we're going to be taking a look at, at chapter 7. But I know we did 1 Corinthians about a year and a half ago because I, I literally still have the notes from when I preached in 1 Corinthians on my computer. And just going through it, and I know I kind of briefly touched it when we went through 1 Corinthians. Paul is basically forming the early church here. And if you know anything about me, I'm, I'm a restaurateur. I've, other than four years in the military, my whole working career has kind of been in the restaurants. Um, except I did landscape one summer, but I crashed the lawnmower into a lake. And they called me, they called me Break It Brian because it just, it wasn't for me. So I, I quickly converted to the restaurant industry, and that was a much better fit for me. And one of my professional uh, kind of role models or idols, maybe not who he is as a human being, but kind of who he was as a restaurateur, is a man whose name is Ray Kroc. And you may you know, know of his work if you don't know him. He's, he's kind of the founder of the McDonald's company. Have you guys heard of a restaurant called McDonald's, little Irish burger restaurant? Yeah. Eli's saying no. He, he like brings us all breakfast like one week a month from McDonald's every, every service. So one thing that was implemental um, about Rick Kroc is he did not invent McDonald's. A couple of brothers invented McDonald's. But he's the one who spread that message of McDonald's throughout America and then throughout the world during his time. And similarly to Paul, who was a convert of Jesus and went on different missional uh, evangelistic ministries, planted churches, when Ray Kroc discovered McDonald's, he would go to Chicago and he would plant a bunch of McDonald's throughout the Chicago region. And then he would move to Minnesota and he would plant a bunch of McDonald's all throughout Minnesota. And then he'd go to Iowa and plant a bunch of McDonald's all throughout Iowa. But one thing that was great about Ray Kroc and the reason we still have McDonald's today and it's not just another restaurant company that doesn't exist is he was a stickler for the standards, the same way that Paul was a stickler for making the gospel be the main thing. He would plant all of these restaurants and then one day after being all throughout, he would come back and just tear them a new one if they were doing something the wrong way. This is not the McDonald's way. This is not the way we're gonna do it. You can't put corn on the cob on the menu. This is a McDonald's. And because of that, today, there's McDonald's in like a hundred different nations. Um, in fact, we knew the situation with Russia and Ukraine was getting bad because the McDonald's in Russia shut down and they're like, okay, it's getting serious. McDonald's is closed. And you can go to, after church, you can go get a Big Mac here in Bloomington and you know you could then get in a plane and you could fly to LA and you can get a Big Mac and then you can get in a plane again and fly to Tokyo, Japan and get a Big Mac and it's gonna taste the exact same no matter where you go because one man deeply cared about this is the McDonald's way, I am going to write letters, show up, be in your business, 
to make this standard the way that it is. Similarly, we have this early New Testament church and we have Paul. Paul has gone to these different churches, planted them. We've got the church in Corinth. We've got the church in Ephesus. And he didn't just plant these churches, go along his way, not care about Christ being the central thing. He was a stickler for that standard. And as a result, we get these letters to the church in Corinth written by Paul. So that's kind of what we're in the heart, we're in the meat and potatoes of. And if you know a lot about 1 Corinthians, is it's a really harsh letter. It's everything they're doing wrong. He's addressing issues in the church. They've got people in the church and involved in incest, uh, involved in idol worship, uh, not understanding like the rules of what the church is supposed to provide. And he writes this really harsh letter. And then we get to 2 Corinthians and we see a little bit different version of a letter because there is a little bit of repentance there. And so that's actually the the title of this uh, message, and that's repentance. Um, So we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 7. Um, That being said, you, you probably know this without knowing it, but the Bible, when it was written, when Paul wrote these letters, he did not write chapter 7, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 2. He just wrote a letter, sent it to the church in Corinth. When Luke is writing the gospel of Luke and the, you know, the gospel or the, the word, the acts of the apostles, he's not writing Acts chapter 1. That all came thousands of years later. That's actually two dudes. One wrote made them in the chapters, and then another guy made them in the verses. So Stephen Langston is the man who's responsible for creating all the chapters of the Bible and making them you know, in order to where they make sense. And another guy, Robert Stephanus, gave them all the verses. So I say that to let you know the Bible is divinely inspired by God with authors, uh, but these guys did a great job but you know, I don't think it's blasphemous to say maybe they made some mistakes in how they placed the verses and chapters. Hopefully I don't have to apologize for saying that next week. Uh, so in fact, Stephen Langston was kind of like a traveling nomadic road on horseback person. And they say that as he was riding, sometimes he would like mess up the line and that just became part of it. So keep that in mind because we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 1. And even though I'm super thankful for these people because I couldn't imagine Matt doing a sermon every week and then like, hey, draw a line right there because here's where I'm going to stop and next week we're going to start in the line. It's easier. We can just, hey, we're on chapter 7 today and you can look it up. But if you look, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 starts literally in the middle of a sentence. It says, Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impunity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. So if a sentence starts with therefore, Matt, what does that mean? Yeah, what is it there for? But this one kind of stinks because this is the start of a whole new chapter. So if we're going to look at chapter 7, verse 1, and it starts with therefore, we're going to need to back it up a little bit and see what it's there for. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And here's the thought that Paul is going through in this portion of the letter. 
It says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does God's sanctuary have with idols? For we are the sanctuary of the living God, as God said, I will dwell among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So we get a command and, and follow it up with a promise here. If you see you know, verse 14, the command is to not be mismatched with unbelievers. Luke talked about this a bit last week, about being unequally yoked. And what that is is two oxen that are tied together with a common mission they need to be of equal skill and of an equal mission. I had a great example of kind of being unequally yoked, not so much in a relationship, but in a work situation this week. So for me, I run a restaurant in downtown Indianapolis, and it's a really big weekend for us. So yesterday, I don't know if anybody here is a WWE fan, but they were, you know, like 100 feet from my restaurant. They had a major event at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. And then today, uh, this little football team called the Colts play a team called the Titans. And apparently they're bitter rivals, if that's the case. And so that's, that's a pretty major event. And then tomorrow, uh, a little band called the Eagles, if you've ever heard of them, they, you know, they're pretty popular. They're here for a two-day event. So on Friday, when we got our shipment of supplies, we got enough supplies because it's Columbus Day weekend and we're not getting a delivery tomorrow like we normally do to go through WWE event, an NFL football game, and then a back-to-back -back show of a major concert that's gonna sell out 20,000 tickets times two. And so we got a lot of stuff. And one of the things that we get is oil that we use to deep fry things. And one of the tragedies of COVID is it helped make things super expensive. And back in the day when you had oil, it would be this little 20 pound jug, right? And you'd pour it in. Garrett, you know what I'm talking about from the, the Longhorn days. And you probably know about the post-COVID days when that got so expensive, nobody was buying 20 pound drums anymore. They were buying gallon giant oil barrels of this stuff. And so we got like 30 of these giant oil barrels and we have to like lift them and put them away. And my only help is this girl who's like maybe 105 <laughs> pounds, right? And she's like, Hey, and these barrels, I looked them up, they're like 167 pounds. And she's like, I'm gonna help you put these barrels away, right? And so we started off, she's grabbing the left side, I'm grabbing the right side. And I eventually, after like one or two, looked at her and I said, it would be easier if you just didn't do this at all. We are unequally yoked to perform this task. And so, you know, Having help that's not equal to you is worse than just not, not having help at all sometimes. It would be like, you know, Coda helping me out. We're pretty unequally yoked. <laughs> you guys don't know this. He's not actually weak, but I've mentioned him 
by name in every sermon I've ever preached at, at FX. And I told him today, I don't really have a way to fit you in. And he's like, well, you gotta find a way. So that's my, my code, a shout out for the week. But anyways, similarly, there is a command to not match yourself up with those who are not believers. And that command comes with a promise. It says, you know, I will dwell among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. It continues, it says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Whenever Paul is saying these things, it's, it's really interesting because these are not just his words. He's actually quoting a great deal of scripture here. Specifically, he's quoting Ezekiel 37, Exodus 29, and Leviticus 26. So as you kind of keep that in mind, let's, let's read these verses. It says, my dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. This is written in a time where we don't, he didn't have the, the Bible on his phone. He didn't have, uh, you know, a 66-book canonized Bible in his hand. He has a grasp of Scripture in a period of time where it is not easy to have a grasp on Scripture. So that's kind of the first challenge that you kind of see out of these chapters is what is your grasp on scripture? You know, Psalms 119.11, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And you can see Paul is someone who has hidden his word in his heart. And because of that, when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of scripture because of his knowledge and his grasp on it. You know, I think all the time of, you know, when, when we would go on mission trips and you just don't, you don't have signal on your phone and your ability to, to look verses up just goes away and you're like, man, what is, what is my grasp on, on scripture look like? I, I know this verse and I know it's in the Bible. I have no idea where it is. And you, you can see that, that Paul, he has a grasp on scripture. So that should be a challenge to you to hide your word in your heart. So whenever you speak, whenever you reprimand, whenever you need to adhere to the standard of the gospel and ensure that people within your church and your community are doing the same. Are you doing it with your own thoughts, your own opinions, or are you doing it with the basis of scripture? And so that's, that is a central challenge and a central message throughout the whole Corinthians letters, both of them. Uh, so let's go back to 2 Corinthians 7. So we see the, the challenge and we see the promise, right? The challenge, don't be impure. Don't match yourself up with unbelievers. We see the promise. If you do that, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. I will walk among you. So now we can see what it's there for. Dear friends, since we have set such promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, completing our sanctification in the fear of God. <coughs> okay, moving on. 2 Corinthians 7. Accept us. We have wronged no one, corrupted no one, defrauded no one. 
I don't say this to condemn you, for I've already said that you are in our hearts to live together and die together. I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement. I, have, I am overcome with joy in all our afflictions. We see a lot of Paul calling out people amongst their sins. And we live in a period of time where we're getting told very frequently not to do that. You know, you can't even get on Facebook or listen to a song on pop music and you hear, only God can judge us. You can't judge me. That's, you know, God gets to do that, not you. But here you see Paul has done this all throughout Corinthians and we get to this part of 2 Corinthians 7 and he's saying, dude, you need to accept me. I've not wronged you in me calling out your sins. I have not committed a sin to do that. I have not corrupted you. I have not defrauded you. I'm not saying this to condemn you. I am saying this because you're in my heart. I care about you. We need to live together and die together. And I have great confidence and pride in you. And the good news is he is filled with encouragement. We're gonna kind of see why later. But you need to understand there may be times where you may see things that are going on that are sinful around you. And we may live in a society where it says, don't, don't speak out against that. Don't, don't do that. Don't judge, don't judge others. That's, that's God's role. If you do that, you're sinning. And here you can see that Paul did that quite clearly all throughout the scripture. And he, he needs you to understand he's, he's, he's committed no wrong by doing so. You know, there's a, a wrong way to go about it, but doing it in and of itself is not wrong. You know, there's, there's a way to confront sin. We see that throughout this passage of scripture. And if you look, you know, Matthew 7, 1 says, do not be judged so that you won't be judged. You, you may hear that, but you see the counter argument. That is taking the Bible out of its context versus 2 Corinthians is putting it in its proper context of that. Second uh, Corinthians 7, 5 and 6. In fact, we came into Macedonia. We had no rest. Instead, we were troubled in every way. Conflicts on the outside, fears on the inside. But God, who comforts the humble, comfort us by the arrival of Titus. Anybody here a fan of Lord of the Rings? Okay, there's, there's a few solid people. Paul, I appreciate it. <laughs> Julietta is raising Paul's hand. Like, be honest, you're a fan of Lord of the Rings. You know, it's my favorite movies of all time. If you were to ask me, Brian, what's your favorite movie? It's Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Probably wouldn't even have to think about it. Just best movie ever. But in the second movie, um, you see there's this battle going on for a country called Rohan, right? And the people of Rohan, they've hidden in this, you know, war cathedral called Helm's Deep, and they're losing. But they've got Gandalf who said, on the fifth day, I'm sunrise, look east, I'm going to be there, right? And so you see Aragorn and all of these characters that if you're not a fan of, you're not going to understand at all. They're just getting their butts kicked. And then on the fifth day, you see the sun come up, and then you look up, and there's Gandalf. 
He's there. He's bringing comfort to you. Similarly, that's the role that Titus is playing. They, they are dealing with all of these great troubles in every way, these conflicts, as Paul is going and traveling through, throughout his evangelistic ministries. And he's comforted by the arrival of Titus. You can definitely tell that he feels the similar feeling to the great proverb 27:17, as iron sharpens iron one man sharpens another he's thankful for titus and you will will dig into it a little bit more because this is a, a brother to him this is someone that can sharpen him this is someone that can encourage him tell him what he's doing right help him with what he's doing wrong and, and we're going to see a little bit of that in this conversation that Paul and Titus have with one another. Verse 7, it says, And not only by his arrival, but also by the comfort he received from you. He told us about your deep longing, your sorrow, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For when I grieved with you with my letter, I do not regret it. Even though I did regret it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a little while. Now I rejoice because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. The thing that he's encouraged by from Titus is Titus has brought a report from the church of Corinth. Hey, Paul, you wrote this really harsh letter and you may even regret it a little but I can see the response they had. Have any of you ever had a time where you had to have like a really hard, really difficult conversation with someone? Yeah, I, I have to do it all the time. I'm, I'm a, you know, a manager at work and I have to have difficult conversations with staff all the time. And one thing I've noticed is my first response to when I realize I need to have this conversation is like, oh no. What if I didn't have this conversation? What if I didn't have to go through that confrontation with this person? And I, I've come to discover that when I don't have that conversation, the problem always continues to get worse. And when I do have the conversation, no matter what, whether the conversation goes well or the conversation goes poorly, my problem will always 100% of the time get better. When I have that conversation with somebody, I may regret it. I may be in the inside shaking of, is this person going to beat me up for having this confrontational situation? Um, but they either respond with repentance, and my problem gets better because I had confrontation with them, or I fire them or they quit based off of that conversation. But regardless, it gets better for me from that moment on. Either they repent or they quit and they leave, they go out of my life and they're just somebody I used to know. That gets better. So you see that with Paul, right? He's written this first letter uh, of Corinth to Corinth. It's been a really harsh letter. And you see Paul going through that. You know, I had a little bit of regret because you were grieved but I also don't regret it because, A, the point that I needed to make was important, but also because I'm hearing from Titus, my brother has come to let me know that your grief that you had 
led to repentance. It led to a change of heart. And you didn't experience any loss from us because of that repentance that happened. So Paul has had that confrontational situation, and they didn't quit and decide to go away from God entirely. They saw it, and there's a little bit of repentance that has happened there. And you need to understand that repentance and regret are two very different things. When I do wrong and I regret it, it's not the same as when I do wrong and I repent. Repentance requires me to assess the wrong, apologize for the wrong, and then change that behavior. You know, it's as if if I live in Bloomington and then I move to Ellettsville and I'm always driving to Bloomington, repentance is to say, I don't live there anymore. I'm going a new way. I'm going to the place I live now. I am in repentance from that period of time. And so we're going to look at two different examples of two people doing something wrong, one of them having regret for the wrongdoing, and one of them repenting of that wrongdoing. And coincidentally, both of these events take place in one 24-hour period of the Bible. So let's look at Matthew 26. starting with verse 47. It says, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived, a large mob with swords and clubs with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign, The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, Why have you come? Then they came up, took a hold of Jesus, and arrested him. Here we see the wrongdoing. Here we see the sin. The sin is Judas has betrayed Jesus, sold him out to the religious people who wanted to kill him. And we see him experience something that is not repentance. We see him later experience something that is regret. So let's go to Matthew 27 shortly after and read verse 3 through 5. It says, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the sanctuary and departed. And then he went and hanged himself. One of the key differences between repentance and regret is regret leads to just further separation from God and repentance will bring you back to God. Regret looks like throwing the silver and going out and hanging yourself. Judas is not repented. Judas is filled with regret. And then we're going to see another story of someone who also committed a sin against God, and we see what that looks like when it comes to repentance. It says Luke 22. They seized him, led him away, and brought them to the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter 
was following at a close distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the firelight, they looked closely at him. She said, this man was with him too, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, this man was certainly with him, since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know him, what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said before him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Here we see the sin. The sin is that Peter, who is supposed to be a disciple of God, is now, when he's dealt with a seriously confrontational situation, is denying Christ. It's easy to follow Christ when you know, you're seeing, seeing him feed 5,000 people. It's easy to follow Christ when you see him raise people from the dead. You know, it's easy to follow Christ when your life is going really well. But now we see it's not. He sees that Jesus is probably about to get killed in some way. He may not know whether it's crucifixion or what. But he also knows his association with Jesus is now going to create a difficult situation on him. And what is his response to that? Is he tries to distance himself. I don't know Jesus. Definitely don't know Jesus. A third time, I don't know him. That's the sin. And Peter... You know, although he may also have regret, he has something different. He has repentance. And we see what that looks like later on, what it's like to be repentant, to be drawn back to Jesus after you've committed a great sin. And we see that in John 21, verse 17. It says, he asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grief that he asked him the third time, do you love me, he said? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. You can see that the relationship has now brought him back to God. When Judas ran and or hung himself, you see Peter once again being drawn back to God after the resurrection. And you know we see Peter live such a godly lifestyle of repentance later that people in the Catholic Church literally refer to him as the first pope. And you, you can see that difference of relationship between regret and repentance. So when you have sinned, when you have wronged God, my question to you is, do you typically have regret or do you have repentance? Repentance always involves you saying, I'm no longer going to do this thing. I am going to turn and do something else. Repentance will always draw you closer to God, not further away from God. Um, we can see 2 Corinthians 7. It says, for godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation but worldly grief produces death. We definitely see those two things in these two examples. For considering how much diligence this very thing, this grieving as God wills, has produced in you 
What a desire to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what deep longing, what zeal, what justice. And every way you showed yourselves to be pure in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not because of the one who did wrong or because of the one who was wronged, but in order that your diligence for us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. You can see it once again. Godly grief produces repentance. And what do the people of Corinth have for the most part in response to the first letter? You can see it's, it's produced some zeal. It's produced a, a bit of changing of their ways. You need to understand that your response whenever you have wronged God might be to hide. It might be to run away. I don't know how many people I've talked to that said, oh, I need to get right with God before I go to church. If I walked into the church, I might catch on fire, right? Like you're not, nobody, that would be the craziest thing ever if somebody walked in and caught on fire, right? You need to understand that no matter where you are in life, there is an opportunity for you to repent and to be drawn closer to God. Uh, Jesus talks about them, that himself in, in a famous parable that we're going to take a look at. So let's look at Luke 15. And we're going to read through it a little bit, starting with verse 11, Luke 15:11. He also said, "A man had two sons. The younger of him said to his father, "Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me." So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the young son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill of the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring me the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. This son has, you know, he's committed a great sin. He's, he's left his father, he's left God, and he's chosen to live his life his own way. And as a result, the natural consequence of that is eventually there's going to become a famine, there's going to be a hardship, there's going to be a period of time where you're going to come to regret that decision in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, this son had probably the opportunity to just 
sit there in that lifestyle and potentially die and never have a spirit of repentance. But we see here, he has great repentance. He says, I'm not worthy of being God's son. If I walk back in the house, I might catch on fire. The same way people say, if I, if I walk in the church, I'm going to catch on fire. But I am going to go back to my father anyways and just see if he'll take me as I am. And maybe I can be a servant even though I'm not worthy to be a son. But we see the relationship with the father is much different than that. He's, he's more than willing when he sees his son's repentance heart to draw him back, to bring him back to him. And that's what they're talking about in 2 Corinthians. Of There's regret. You've committed these wrongs. I've called you out for these wrongs. You've shown repentance. And now as a result, I'm so excited that that relationship is becoming restored. Moving on to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 13. It says, For this reason we have been comforted. In addition to our comfort, we rejoice even more over the joy Titus had, because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. For I have made any boast to him about you. I have not been embarrassed, but as I have spoken everything to you in truth, so our boasting to Titus had also turned out to be the truth. And his affection towards you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of all of you and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that I have complete confidence in you. You know, I... I, I read through this, and I've actually spent a lot of time kind of reflecting through a previous job I had with, with Longhorn Steakhouse. And I can bring up Longhorn a lot because half of you all work there. Um, uh, but, and I usually try to tell somebody I'm going to bring them up before I bring them up in a sermon, but I've you know, decided not to do that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Kiana. And if you get upset by anything I say, feel free to hit me after, after the service, right? But, you know... Kiana's been coming here four or five years at this point, right? And I think out of everyone here, I think I've known you longer than anybody else that, that goes to church here. And the reason I've known her that long is because she was an 18-year-old host at the same time that I was a young server. So we've, we've both come a long way in our respective you know, work fields since then. But in our early days, and I think it's safe to say this, I was not a fan of Kiana, and maybe Kiana was not a fan of me. And, and I, you know, if you've ever been at a restaurant and you get sat somewhere and like nobody talks to you and nobody greets you and you're looking around like, where the heck is my waiter, right? And you're mad at the waiter. It's because some 18-year-old like Kiana <laughs> set you in a section that nobody is serving, nobody's assigned to, and just expects you to know and go greet it, right? And so I'm constantly confronting Kiana. I'm giving her an attitude. I'm not doing it as sinlessly as Paul did, right, when he's confronting the church of Corinth. And she's, you know, have an attitude back with me. And it's a, it's a fairly regular occurrence in the early days of, of our relationship. So I go away. I get promoted into management. I go to Avon for about a year. And during that period of time, Kiana starts, you know, coming to church and starts, you know, I left, Jay came uh, to Longhorn, and you see Kiana come. You see Kiana convert, have repentance, 
becomes a Christian. And eventually I go back to Bloomington. And I can remember I've been back in Bloomington for a short period of time, and a time occurs for me to once again confront Kiana about something. And I don't necessarily know the details of it, but I give her an attitude less sinlessly than Paul, and she gives one back. And then 20 minutes later, she says, Brian, I need, I need to talk to you. And she goes, we sit down at a booth, and she says, hey, whether or not I agree with you or not, whether or not I'm upset, you're the authority that's been put over me in my life, and I need to have respect for that authority. And I remember after that conversation thinking, huh, I mean, that sounds a lot like someone who's repented of the person that they are before. And I went from my first days at Longhorn where it was myself and my wife and, and everyone was lost. And you see Kiana you know, come to repentance. And through Jay and Kiana, it turned into Jesse. And it turned into Annie Carter, who's not going to be Annie Carter much longer. So I'm going to have to, I've, I've called her by her first and last name the whole time I've known her because there was another Annie at Longhorn. So she's Annie Carter for a brief period. And through Annie Carter, then Garrett comes into the fold. And next thing you know, there's all of us working together through one person's repentance. and goodness, if you were a cook walking in for a Tuesday shift, you, you were probably going to hear about Jesus three or four times before the restaurant opened. And I can remember we, we had this cook named Eric, and it's like about to be a busy day. And, you know, Kiana's there for her opening shift. I'm the opening manager. And, and poor Eric's got Kiana just walking side by side, telling her all about, telling him all about Jesus this whole time. And I'm like, Kiana, I'm super thankful, but we got a restaurant to open here. And like, he can't get any work done because you're just following him along, telling him about Jesus. And, and similarly, you see Paul seeing that degree of repentance, and he's, he's bragging about it. He's telling others about it. He's telling Titus, look what we've done. There's repentance here. There's a changing here. And, you know, getting to see that, you know, is super encouraging. Seeing that message from Titus to Paul is super encouraging. You had these confrontational situations. You had to write them a really harsh letter. They responded well to it. They've repented it naturally. That's something Paul is going to brag about to Titus. He's going to brag about it to others. And, you know, that was something for me to experience and watch that degree of repentance and how it, I mean, it turned into, you know, Matt called it a, a mini revival at the Longhorn. And I, I felt like that, that certainly was the case. And I'm going to close with the, the last verse here. We're going to take a look back at Peter again. And you see kind of what the ultimate form of that repentance is. This is someone who's, you know, denied Christ, felt regret, that regret turned into repentance. So it's 1 Peter 1, 17. And if you address as father, the one who judges impartially based on each other's work, you are to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your temporary residence. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from fathers, not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was chosen before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the times for you. 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. By obedience to the truth, having purified yourselves for sincere love of the brothers, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached as the gospel to you. So here you see Peter vigorously proclaiming the word of God. And you think, what if, what if he would have had regret without repentance like Judas did? What if it just would have been regret? What if he would have never said, God, I love you? And God say, please feed my sheep. We would have lost some of the greatest you know, gospel teachings of our time through the life of Peter without repentance. If, if, you're, if you're living in some kind of sin, whether it's a, a secret sin or a proclaimed sin that everybody knows about, you need to understand that there's, there's a chance for repentance. I hope that you repent. And if you do repent, you can understand that there's forgiveness there, like there was for the prodigal son, like there was for Peter. You, you can understand that your old life has been taken away. You've been made a, a pure, flawless person again. And, you know, that will endure forever. Um, so with that being said, let's go ahead and pray. So, Father, we just thank you for uh, this message in, in 2 Corinthians. Thank you for the many times you've shown us that we can live our lives a certain way, and there's an opportunity to be forgiven through that. I just pray for those of us who, who need to understand repentance, that we would see the areas in which we've sinned against you, that we would not just feel regret for them, but you would see a change. You would see uh, an earnest longing for us to be drawn back to you, God. Uh, just thank you for the message of people like the prodigal son who went on their way and, and were drawn back to the father and how we can know that like that father, God, you're, you're a good father who wants to, to bring us back into, into family. And, you know, thank you for the message of Peter that even though we can deny you when there's true repentance, that you're there to, to take us back and you're there to use us again. And I just pray for those of us who have repented of our, of our sins that we could be a vessel for you, Lord. We, we understand that all we're capable of doing on our own is failure, but you can, you can make us not, not fail and you would be our Father and our guide and pray that we'd have that understanding. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.